I don't know if you caught that in that scripture reading. But it talks about being perfect in oneness or perfect in one. That's a whole other sermon for another time, but somehow your perfection is linked to your ability to be one with each other. And today we're going to look at how this oneness, pretty much we're going to wrap up the series on oneness today. There's going to be a 12-part series, but I'm going to end it with number 10 here today, mainly because we have communion and some other guest speakers coming in the month. And so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you do promise that we can be one. And the Bible outlines clearly the process we should take in becoming one with you, with each other, and then spreading that message of oneness to the world around us so that soon and very soon, when you do come, we will have oneness with you forever. Guide us as we look at this here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, how many of you, what's that? You need to say it clearly. Oh, okay. Thank you. Rewind that tape and let's start over. <laughs> Let's connect to a projector. Duplicate, yeah. As I was saying, how many of you are familiar with the news that took place this last Monday? Some of you saw this picture on the news. Anybody else see this picture besides me? It was this, this is an interesting occurrence because as of late, especially since this, this latest world leader, the Pope, has come into the news scene repeatedly, I've noticed that the news seems to zero in on, every, on things that he says, things that he does. Uh, just, they start talking about his life. And if you notice in that picture, not only do you have the Pope, but you've got Bartholomew, you've got uh, two distinguished leaders, one of Israel, one of the Palestinians. And what purpose did they come together for? They said it was a prayer conference, a prayer meeting, an unprecedented prayer meeting of no political reasons for it. All right. But we all know that at least one of those individuals, in fact, three of those individuals are political leaders as well. And so as I read about this, I thought to myself, you know, here we've been talking about oneness. Here we've been talking about how we could have peace with God and each other, and they're praying for that. Is this the type of oneness that the Bible pictures at the end of time? Some kind of political, religious oneness here on planet Earth. As I looked at the story itself, I began to have concerns. I'm not one of those who likes to go out and define every little conspiracy theory, okay? But as I, re as I read what was taking place there, how back in May this had already been planned, where the Pope said, in this, the birthplace of the Prince of Peace on May 25, Mass, I wish to invite you, President, now, President Abba, Abba, Abbas, together with President Shimon Perez, to join me in heartfelt prayer to, the, to God for the gift of peace. And so back in May, he had already talked about this idea of meeting together, and before this meeting took place last Monday, we, we learned that the U.S. peace talks, if you will, failed. And so the news reporters are zeroing in on this, how the United States didn't, did not succeed in getting them to come together in peace. But now they're having this prayer meeting, this unprecedented prayer meeting in the Middle East. And look at these quotations. Israeli leaders said, Without peace, we are not complete. We have yet to achieve this mission of humanity. Even when peace seems distant, we must pursue it to bring it closer. Can we agree that those are some good sentiments, that we must pursue peace, that we 
in essence, should pursue peace, that it really would be the best interest of all of humanity if it had peace. But I'm wondering as to where they're going to for that peace. And then we find Abbas, he says, together with its people, we call on you to make Palestine and Jerusalem in particular, notice that, Jerusalem in particular, a secure land for all believers, a place of prayer and worship for all believers to come together and to be worshiping together. And what was their focus of some of the other things that they talked about and prayed about? They focused on the beauty of God and creation. They focused on forgiving past sins. They focused on this idea of coming together in peace. Oneness. Oneness that they're hoping that would not just be spiritual, but would also carry out into the political realm. And that is really where I draw the line. Not because I don't want to see peace and oneness in our world and our politics and all that. Not because I don't believe that God is working through government and people and has different people in places and times to hold in check some of the tyranny and some of the evil we see in our world. He has government people. Look at the book of Daniel. You find very clear he had his people there in Babylon. But the idea, though, of going back to a oneness or a peace that somehow took place in the past. When did that take place in the past? We find when the religious political groups got together and merged and began to enforce their view of oneness, then it always led to tyranny and fear. And so that's really where I thought to myself, you know, I, I'm going to pray for peace in the Middle East. I'm going to pray for these political religious leaders. But as I read my Bible... When Jesus comes in the clouds of glory and usher is in oneness forever, he does away with all the kingdoms of this world. It has really no political value as far as the politicians go this day. He wants a peace in each one of our hearts that will then permeate into our families, into our church, into our communities, into our worlds. And so we've looked at oneness Oneness before the foundation of the world. We saw that it existed in the Godhead and how as they carried out the plan of salvation, they were united in that purpose to save you and to save me. I didn't hear anything about that at the prayer meeting. And as I also looked down and how the oneness in the creation of our world, it was there. God extends it as he makes mankind. Yes, there's beauty in creation. But how come they're not talking about the God who can bring oneness who made creation? And then we saw that evil was the undoing of oneness. Anything that could undermine coming together is evil. And so am I undermining it by saying that I don't agree with the way that it happened in the news? I don't think so. I think it's a type of oneness that's a counterfeit. Why do we need one individual to tell us the way to God? Why do we need these leaders to set the tone for what we ourselves should be setting as individuals? I'm thankful that they're willing to call us to peace and oneness in a way. But who is going to be leading that peace at the end of time? And so we found the promise restorer is the one who I want to see lead my heart, who I want to see lead our church. That's the one who I would point to, not to human people and human leadership positions, but to Jesus himself. And that's where we learned that Jesus set up not only 
the promise of the restore, but also the promise of his rest and the promise that he, we would have relationships that would be lasting. Look at Noah's relationship with his family. It lasted through that evil, wicked world and it went on down through. And look at Enoch, who walks with God. We saw these individuals who their relationships with God were intact. Their relationships with their family were intact. They were able to maintain purity with God in the midst of an evil world. And then we saw that there were episodes such as Cain and others who allowed insinuations and talk about others and anger, anger to the point where they would be willing to betray even those who trusted them. Those are some of the evils of the past that have to be forgiven at that prayer meeting. Millions who have died trusting that the church would not kill its own members who stood up for the Bible. Those are some of the things that need to be forgiven in the past, in the medieval church period, that need to be acknowledged, and that need to be acknowledged that that is still the method that they're functioning on, is not the Bible alone, but on a different standard. And so I would see that eventually, though that would look like oneness in our newspaper, it would eventually deteriorate to the point where if you pushed those leaders and you did not agree with them, would they eventually use fear to compel you? That's the question I have about that. When we get down to Malachi, we find that God doesn't use that method. We find that he sends messenger after messenger after messenger to say, it's time to turn. You've been going the wrong way. Go this way. How come there was no call to repentance? There was an idea of forgiveness, but why not call people to the Lord God himself? That's where the true peace, that's where the true shalom goes comes from and goes out of us to the world. And so then we learn that we have the Elijah message to proclaim to the world, one that will appear in contrast, not because we're trying to make it that way, but because that's just the way it is. In contrast, the oneness we see around us. And so the oneness in us, we saw that God made the world, the Spirit of God was there, God the Father was there, God the Son was there, let us make man in our image. So the goal of God is to once again remake you, remake me into the image of God. To have oneness in us. Just like when he formed man of the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He gives life. He's made that being in his image. He wants to do the same thing to us. He wants to put life-giving properties into each one of us. Oneness with us. And then I noticed for today's idea that it's interesting that in the plan of salvation, God himself doesn't stand afar off. He himself gets involved in earth's history, literally comes into humanity to show us the way that each one of us individually could have oneness and then how that could change our church and our world. We find it's uh, prophesied about a virgin would be with child and she would bring forth that child, right? And, sh and his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But as, it's, as the text progresses, it's not God with us, it's God in us. And so God with us equals God in us. Mary agrees to be the one who not only receives God's grace, but allows the Holy Spirit into her life. Jesus eventually is born, and the Savior of the world is revealed. And that process is reduplicated in each one of us. Holy Spirit coming upon us the Savior, in essence, taking residence in us 
and us no longer living, but Christ living in us. So that promised restore isn't just coming to say, come on, follow me externally. Come on, I'm going to come right to each one of you and lead you physically to the way. No, he's actually coming into us and leading us from inside, guiding us as to what the right thoughts are, guiding us to the right practices of life, guiding us on how to treat each other. This mind that was in Christ Jesus is in you. And so every true follower of Jesus then experiences this oneness. And if you don't believe in the virgin birth, then more than likely you don't believe in other things, and this miracle will not take place in your life. And so we find Jesus was born, becomes God with us because he was in us, and there we find that one plus one plus one idea again. All the way throughout his life, especially as you go on down, you get to his baptism, there he is a, a, a grown man, going to begin his ministry, baptized by John. And who do we have there? The Father who says, this is my beloved Son, whom I well please. The Holy Spirit that comes down upon him like a dove. And then we have the Son right there in the water. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there they are in that ministry of Jesus. And if we think he's somehow disconnected some point or another in his ministry, it, it's totally wrong. He stays connected all the way through to the cross and beyond. In fact, as you go through his life, you find there he is ministering to the kids and to healing the sick, preaching. You find there that oneness remains. There the Godhead is working in every miracle, working in every situation. Isn't it true that he went up to the mountainside? Isn't it true that he stayed communing with his Father and said, Our Father which art in heaven? And we find him just constantly in connection with heaven. And so he shows us how to maintain not only unity in a church, but oneness with God in our lives. You know we should spend a thoughtful hour looking at his life. We'll look at it for about a half an hour here this morning. So Jesus stayed connected to heaven, did he not? Would we all agree that he stayed connected to heaven? All right. And so there we are. He's feeling the pull of the crowd. He's done miracles. He's getting tired. And, and where does he go? He goes off into nature, right? The Spirit leads him into the wilderness, and then he gets tempted out there, right? So he faces a temptation in the power of the Spirit. We do the same thing. We can have the same victories that Jesus had if we are led by the same Spirit. And so where do you go when things really get hectic? Well, Jesus found himself between the mountain and then the multitude. There I was Memorial Day weekend feeling the same thing. A whole lot of things happening that week and, and even before that. And I just said, I need to go and be having some time with God in nature. You ever had that experience? Where you just feel like, I need to get out? I need to get away? I need to sit beside some still waters? Or I need to go and see a waterfall and have the mist just mist me over, make me feel refreshed? I need to be refreshed. Some of you might have a wonderful backyard where that takes place. Wherever it is, somehow connecting with God. And in nature, somehow it helps. I don't do that whole meditation business, but, but as far as meditating on his good works and what he has done, yeah, hallelujah, do that. And nature, be led by the Spirit. And then we find he was constantly in study. He constantly recognized that even as he was preaching or getting ready to share that message, didn't he say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to proclaim good news? So there he was, right in the middle of his preaching, recognizing as he did that scripture reading, 
as he shared what he had studied, maybe in his childhood and beyond, he recognized the Spirit of the Lord guiding him there. How much time are we spending recognizing that in our study? I know you may not want to read five chapters a day out of the Bible, or four chapters, or three, or two, or one, but how much time are you spending reading the Word of God? I'm saying apart from reading Ellen White's writings, because some people will substitute her writings and just read her writings instead of the Bible. And that's not what her intent ever was. Her intent was to point you back constantly to the Bible. So when you would see something in her writings, you'd be like, wow, where's that out in the Bible? And you'd go back, and you'd be refreshed as you saw the Word of God. She even tells us ministers not to use her writings as the foundation of our discourses, but instead the Word of God. So read her writings, yes, but also make sure that you're doing what she also told you to do, which was spend that time in the Word of God. How much time are you spending in the Word of God not to read your quarterly time, necessarily. You're going to be doing that. Not, apart from your own white reading time, apart from other devotionals, actually sitting there reading through the story and saying, where's Jesus at in the story? And so the study. Surely Jesus spent time in study. In order to quote the scriptures he quoted in Deuteronomy and other places, he had vast portions of them memorized. You say, well, that's because that's the way they were born. You know, they were born up into that society, and he had to memorize it because... It was an oral tradition society. Well, they had scrolls, did they not? If you had money, you could get a scroll. All right, if you don't have money, you're going to have it read to you. You're going to put it to memory. We're the ones who have the problem. We're the ones who have our memory on the computer rather than up here. And so how much time are we spending bathing ourselves in the Word of God? So staying connected involves that. And then the prayer time. That Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, shows us that even as a human being, that was a way to stay connected to God. And if you notice that prayer, it's like you enter the throne room recognizing the Father in heaven, recognizing his glory, and then you graciously step out of the throne room and face life. King and the power and the glory forever. I mean, you, you, you recognize his power as you go into prayer, and you recognize his power as you step out of the throne room and you go and you face life. How much time are we spending in the throne room with God? And then if you've spent those times, it's almost like your spiritual batteries are charged and you can't help but preach, but share, but live what you've experienced with him. And so that oneness is the desire that God has for each one of us. In fact, in John 14, it says it this way, yet a little while and the world does not see me anymore, but you see me because I live, you shall live also. At that day, you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. All the other messages out there about oneness or coming together or so-called unity, how much are they spending talking about us connecting with God and then once we are empowered that way, connecting with each other? God in us. That's really where it's at. How does he get in us? Through the Holy Spirit. The whole Godhead, when you invite Jesus into your life, the whole Godhead comes into you. That's why those who attack the Godhead, or the, if you want to use the word Trinity, that's a, that's a, that's a subject, a, a word that people use, but the Godhead idea, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, those who attack that probably have not experienced it. And something needs to be converted in their lives. They're hiding something else below their criticism of that doctrine. Because that doctrine is beautiful. Imagine a father in heaven, the most loving, kind father, here we are, Father's Day weekend, actually being willing not only to give 
you external directions right here, but actually able to come into you and to guide you step by step. And that's like someone taking a little kid's hand and, and, and leading them. You say, well, I'm older than I'm not a little kid. You're a little kid. Okay, well, that's fine. But we are all children, are we not? And, and in the scope of eternity, after a thousand years, we're all going to know quite a bit about the same amount. We're all going to have a. We're all going to have our life experiences plus a thousand years. So if you're older than me now, great. You know, it applies to me and you. We're all God's children. And so we need Him to take us by the hand to lead us. And in Revelation, it says, "Those who overcome, they follow the Lamb wherever." He goes. To follow means you trust. To trust means you have a reason to trust. And so you le he leads you and guides you like a father leads a child. And unlike our earthly fathers who get impatient and angry and all of that, um, we find God doesn't do that. He does flare up a couple times, and people are literally misrepresenting his character, misrepresenting his message. But we find there he is patiently wooing us, saying, come on, you know better. And so this oneness, FBI agents, young people, here's your answer, John 17. Jesus talked about it over and over again. Our series began with this concept. It's going to end with this concept. John 17, verses 9 through 11. John chapter 17 Verses 9 through 11, I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Are you his? He's praying for you then. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name, those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are. And so God has prayed for you a long time ago. He's already prayed for this church a long time ago. He's already prayed for your family a long time ago. He's already prayed for your community a long time ago, your world a long time ago. And his goal is not that we would just be so fixated on the world, but actually we'd be focused on him, we'd be one with him, and then that would change the world. Together, we would change the world. And so the text, as we looked at the first time together, there was that one plus one plus one in there, equaled one. Somehow, you could be one with the Father. Jesus' connection with the Father, did it ever waver? Remember how he said, uh, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done, right? And so he had his humanity there. He, he struggled there, especially in that Garden of Gethsemane, and remember when he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? And we always think it's the disciples he's talking about because they're droopy-eyed. But think about himself. Was he willing to go through with it? Yes. But was he having a moment of weakness? Yes. And so he has to be strengthened. Literally, we find in Luke's account, an angel comes and strengthens him. I always thought it was a healing or something, but think about the encouraging words could be, from that angel, a healing balm to Jesus. Come on, you're the, you're the commander of the Lord's armies. I mean, you can do this. I don't know what he said, but somehow encouraging Jesus to go through with it. And he goes through. It goes on, and we find at the cross there, it culminates, this oneness. You find the fathers there, obviously, 
Even though it's dark, even though you have darkness covering the land and it seems like a veil is between Jesus and heaven, he cries out, Father, forgive them. He cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit, my breath. And so who is he talking to if he's not there? The Father's there. The Son's there. And obviously the Holy Spirit's there because there's that guy standing there next to the cross and he says, surely this was the Son of God. Who else would convict a Roman soldier of that other than the Holy Spirit? even convicts the religious people who think they know everything and think that surely this isn't the Messiah. He didn't fit our timeline. He didn't fit the message we wanted him to preach. He didn't fit any of that. And so look at him. He's dying on the cross there and they spit upon him. And, and then they go back and try to make up a counterfeit story to somehow get away from the fact that Jesus had resurrected. If the Holy Spirit wasn't convicting them, then why did they feel so guilty? And then why did they act in their guilt? And so the Holy Spirit was present there even amongst the ones who were against Jesus trying to convict them and woo them and say, why are you doing this? This man was an innocent man. Even spoke it through Pilate, who said, this guy is innocent. And then he resurrects, and the word starts getting around. And they still try to cover it up. You know, if we do not accept what Jesus has done for us, then we will cover it up with all kinds of other false religion. We'll cover it up with our own good works. We'll cover it up with our own little... Uh, soap opera box on some piece of doctrine. We'll cover it up with all kinds of things because we truly don't understand it and we have never experienced it. When I sit with you in your home and I ask you just a simple question, would you have eternal life? Would you say, I hope so? I hope so. Isn't that what the Word of God says the whole point was? Why did he become one of us if it wasn't to save us? Why would you just hope so? It's like someone showing the most wonderful way that they love you, and you say, I hope they love me. Does he love you? What's the proof of that? Right there in the word of God. More proof for that, and we've been seeing in the oneness series, more proof for that than the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is a monument of oneness. It points to the oneness. And you believe the Sabbath, and I believe the Sabbath. You're sitting here this morning. So if you believe that based upon the Word of God, why don't you believe He loves you? You believe it because it's there, not because you feel it. You put your foundation on a rock. Remember that story on the news where that guy thought it was, he said, I thought it was solid. And you can see his, his mansion just starting to demolish down there into that coastline there. Man, he thought it was solid, that's a bad feeling when your house is going, just crumbling down. They've got to burn it and let it crumble down below. Do you truly have a firm foundation, or do you just hope you do? The Bible's pretty clear. We have a crucified, risen, soon-coming Savior who loves you. If you don't believe that, then go look up the word love in your Strong's Concordance and just trace it all the way through the Bible. Especially as you get to the New Testament, you'll find it's very clear. If it was unclear before in the Old Testament for you, then it's very clear in the New Testament. But we've been spending time after time in the Old Testament seeing that God's will is there. His oneness is there. He does love you there in Noah's day, there in Enoch's day, all the way down in Daniel's day, all the way down to Malachi's day. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants you, and he wants to be in you. And so the cross stands as a monument of oneness. But Jesus says... 
little more than that. Look at Galatians 2.20. You ever read that text carefully? I have been crucified with Christ. So you believe in the cross. It's there. It's a fact, right? But did you see yourself dying on the cross? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So that means I died and was resurrected. That means I have to believe that he died and was resurrected for me, for me to be there. Make the connection? It's, there's a cross there, but it was for me. That's how I could even be there. And so I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Once we have that grasp of what Jesus did for us, and we choose to believe it, then it changes us. If you're in a spiritual dry valley and you wonder why things aren't changing, ask yourself, how much time are you spending looking at Jesus in the cross? And I know we don't want to think of a dead Savior, but think about a loving Savior who died for you, is risen, and is coming soon. And so we have that oneness of purpose then. If we all believe that, then our purpose would be very clear, to lift up Jesus to the world around us, to together go around and to minister to those around us. We would have this Godhead in our lives because Jesus is the Godhead bodily. He would be in us through the Spirit. And then individually, we would begin to have it corporately. We would not only have the Godhead in our hearts, but then that would branch over to our families, would it not? And in a way, this could even blur over to here and over to here. We would still keep our individuality, but our family would be changed, would it? And then over here, our fellow members, each one of us having that same experience would then come together in oneness and say, this is why we're here. We are not going to allow these other little things to get in our way. We're going to move forward united in one purpose. We're going to change this world. We're going to put things behind us, yes. And we're going to move forward by faith. But the temptation will still come to listen to that little bit of gossip. The temptation will still come, especially here in the church. We like the juicy little bit of gossip. Used to be that was a place where you'd come to, to hear the latest things that were happening at the church, right? So ancient <laughs> part of American history. Hey, how'd so-and-so do, right? So how does this oneness take place then? Well, this is what we had in our Connections newsletter. If you're separated from Christ, you will not be very close together as a church family. Ellen White's very clear that the closer you and I come individually to Christ, especially recognizing what he's done for us, the closer we will come together as a church family. The closer we will come together as our own physical family. But, if you say that's just grace and I don't want anything to do with that sugar gospel, then you're going to be further away from Christ and then somebody else who's closer, you might even persecute them or pick on them for, for, because of their relationship with Christ. And then what ends up happening? You end up engaging in a divisive action, which according to church manual is subject to church discipline, by the way. Right? So we're all spokes here. Going closer to Jesus. Some of you might be closer to him than even me. But we're all making that journey, are we not? And so here we are going closer to Jesus, becoming more like him. And as we do that, we get closer to each other. That's why that oneness is so important. Spending that time with him. 
Wilson, our president of the General Conference, says it this way, if we're then one with each other and one with him, who's the leader? Isn't Jesus the one we're all progressing toward? So he's then the head. He's then the leader. He says this, Christ is the head of the church. Sometimes people think that the conference or the union conference or general conference is the head, but it is not. Ah, quite a bit different than what we find from other world leaders. They see themselves as the head of state. They see themselves as the head of the church. No, they are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And the problem I really have with a human being being set up as the head of the church is this. Who then, did, then do you look to for leadership? The human being. And I'm not saying we as leaders can't try to help point you to Jesus and help lead in that capacity, but what if I then claim to be God and worthy of worship? And then if you are truly one of my followers, then you would accept exactly the doctrines I give you. And if you do not, you're a heretic. But if you do, you're one with me and one with God. Wouldn't that be just false doctrine? That's why I have a problem with some of the world leaders and church leaders that are out there. They, they themselves claim to be God. That's not the case. Jesus leads the church. All who serve in leadership positions are there to be led as Christ led, not through authoritarian commands. This is how the Antichrist comes into your church. Any one of us who has authoritative commanding mentality, we can easily fall into trying to be the head rather than Christ. And in that way, if we are stepping into the place of Christ, that's literally what Antichrist means, anti in place of Christ, then the church will not flourish and grow. It will only flourish and grow as the body is connected to the head Jesus. Some of you will expect me to make decisive commands or make decisions and say, this is the way it is. How am I supposed to know this is the way it is? I'm praying about it. I'm seeking Jesus. I will at some point say this is morally where I'm coming from and this is where I think we should go. But at the same time, we're a body and we must seek him in prayer. And say, I could be wrong. You could be wrong. And so through godly examples and loving service, we must then, if we're going to have godly examples and loving service, spend that time with him, spend time in prayer. And so what would it look like? Would it look like this? Would it look like me as a CEO dictating to you? That's what somebody told me one time. You're the CEO of the church. You're responsible. Really? I thought Christ was the CEO of this chief executive officer of this church is Jesus. I thought he was the head of this church. Because if I'm the head of the church, then it's just like this business model. The vision, I'll say, well, this is the way we need to go. And, I'll, and, and, and then I'll tell my upper management people, you know, the elders and leaders, this is the way we need to go. And then they will then dictate it to you. And, and anybody gets out of line, they're fired. Problem. We have a volunteer organization. Y'all, even if your pay was double, it'd still be nothing. I mean, it just doesn't, right? So your treasure's up in heaven. You're getting paid that way. So that doesn't work, does it? But have we adopted that model? I've been spending the last six weeks just on this one little thing here for my doctorate. And the answer is, yes, we did adopt this model. The 1970s and 80s, a lot of us pastors and leaders were going through airports and we were picking up leadership literature along the way. One well-known Adventist author told me this. And he said, and we began to adopt some of the same practices. So we began to have a president who dictated to the pastors at the workers' meetings what the mission and the conference was and the baptismal quota was, and this is what you need to do. And so then we came on down and we pushed it on you. 
this new program and this new thing there. But was Jesus the head of that? Well, I think he led in through it. He worked through it. But we adopted a model that really that we've looked to a human being, and we have lots of counsel against that. We're faulty. And so Godhead comes and says, no, we're all one. We all can share the message together, and the model can change. Did it? Could it not? So here's the top-down church model. And then we change it to this. That's where we change it to. So we make decisions together. We take time to make decisions. We recognize that if any one of us in some way is not connected to Jesus, then we need to give them time to connect to Jesus before they make a decision. And so you will find periods of prayer sprinkled throughout your church calendar. You'll find times where, especially as this next fall comes, where we're looking to say, Lord, where would you lead us in the next five years or ten years or however long until you come? Where would you lead us? Then, then I would expect we would be spending time in prayer before all that took place. I would expect that we would then collaborate as pastor and members together and say, where is the Lord leading us as a body of Christ? And so we need to recognize that we are all one with him, and then we need that oneness in our families, our church, and our world, especially here in our church, family, corporately. And then if we're one together, we extend that to the world. The gospel goes. The world ends, not with a political prayer meeting, but with the gospel message of peace going to every heart. So together, we then change the world. God in us, through us, changed the, the world. So my question is, I thought about this sermon, I thought, well, am I going to be an answer to this prayer of Jesus? Where he says, well, I want them all to be one. I want them all to be together. Am I going to unite together with you? I already decided yes before I took the call here. I said, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how you're going to lead this church, but I'm going to let you lead it. And I'll step out of the way and let you lead this church. I'm not saying you won't use me, but can we unite together? Because that oneness in us will then be oneness forever. Look at Revelation 21. He will dwell with them. We will be his people. God himself will be their God. We will be one forever. And so God with us means God in us. And God in us means that together we then spread this gospel and it leads up to oneness forever. It will never be. Another one of these great controversies again. Controversy will be ended. Jesus Christ will be victorious. Sin and sinners will be no more. And we will all be one with God forever. So I pray that you have God in you. Keep praying for me that I will stay connected with God. I'll pray for you that you will stay connected with God. And then together we will march towards that wonderful future. We'll be singing a wonderful song along the way, too. It's in your hymnal. It's uh, actually number 108. One of my favorites. I remember when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist, I heard it, and I used to know the lyrics even before. I heard it different times in my life. This amazing grace that somehow leads to us being with him forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, I mean, imagine that. Imagine after this is all over with, being united with Jesus forever. I invite you to open your hymnal, sing the song or read it on the screen, and say, am I one with God? And then am I willing to share that with the world around me? Number 108, Amazing Grace. If you'd like to stand, feel free.
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secure. Father in heaven, we trust that you will guide us step by step, each one of us, to remain connected to you no matter what we will face, both today, tomorrow, each day until we see you in eternity's wonderful light. Guide us each step of the journey. Help us to have true oneness with you, with each other, with our world, in a sense that we're all pointing to Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.